Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we're tired. We're just perpetually tired. Uh, it's like a thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I am I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you doing today, Karen? You know, I'm doing better than Jim Jordan, so I would say I'm doing all right. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh my god yes we've been chatting about this on our slack (laughs) i you know i hope that this isn't one of those things that we look back on it's like oh it was so much simpler back then when we were just laughing at jim jordan Mm. but but still it is funny yes it is very funny and honestly he deserves it he does like beyond anything else like whatever happens next or anything it's it's a thrill to see someone like that just get his ass handed to him consistently yes <laughs> yes it's been uh it would be funnier if it wasn't so serious but also it's a little funny because he sucks and he deserves it <laughs> i mean at this point you have to laugh at it there's nothing we can do about it right it's right it's yeah. one of those things just like, I'm just going to laugh at, at whatever the fuck this is. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it, it's it's hard not to. So, yeah. You have yes. to laugh or you cry. Those are your, your choices. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of toxic men, uh, we're going to discuss Thanks. gothic horror films. Yes, I think that's a nice, that's a nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to discuss some gothic horror uh, on on the podcast today. This we had actually initially intended to do a different topic, but then we realized that one of the films that we wanted to do wasn't available yet. So so we're going to do gothic horror this time around, and I'm excited because I really love I love gothic horror. It is so deeply fucked up. Um, so so to start out with, Karen, when when we talk about gothic horror, what what do you think of? Uh, I think of big creepy castles and um, uh, yeah, like generational hauntings and mm-hmm. trauma, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of what comes to my mind. Yeah, kind of like the decaying aristocracy sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's that's usually one of the topics of gothic horror because it is like it, it tends to be about long, long term, long term trauma um like the long long periods where generation upon generation have been affected by the actions of their ancestors um and things like that and that the the family has basically collapsed in on itself a lot of it is very family oriented actually it's very much like the descendants who have have gotten worse and worse or have been subjected to more and more horrors until whatever the present day of the story is um yeah and and usually the other thing I think with gothic horror, uh, just in the and this is just in general terms, is that it's very often, not always, but very often focalized through a female character as the main protagonist. Um, she and she's very often an outsider. She's someone who is coming into 
the gothic space and you know the crumbling castle the mansion the the uh the land of ghosts etc and so she's the one that is kind of having to navigate it and to a certain degree actually set those ghosts to rest um and all three of the films actually that that we're talking about today are directly like focalized through female protagonists although i think that um the tomb of Lygia, which is the second film we're going to discuss is very different in, in a certain sense and actually but then also has affinities with um the later film crimson peak so also, of course, Gothic horror is directly related to, to Gothic literature. Um, so stuff like Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, Turn of the Screw, basically every story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote, all of that. And the one of the other things that comes up in a lot of particularly later Gothic horror in terms of literature is this question of ghosts being metaphors or psychological projections. So not so it's it's the question of is the supernatural real or is the supernatural product of the psychologies of the characters um and where that that tension lies and i think when it comes to film that tension is very very important we talked about this a bit actually in the urban legend um episode that we did last week that the tension between um what is real and what isn't and what we believe to be real and how real it becomes uh, is really important, particularly in like all three of the films that we're going to talk about, actually. And, um, and I think it's most important in The Innocence. She's <laughs> <laughs> a, a 1961 film starring Deborah Carr, uh, Michael Redgrave and Megs Jenkins. And it was uh, produced and directed by Jack Clayton from a screenplay by William Archibald and Truman Capote. <laughs> Yeah. Which is surprising in some ways, but then when you actually watch the film, it's like, yep, that makes sense. That makes total <laughs> sense. Um, yeah, there are definitely some Capote elements to it, but it was a surprise for me because I've seen this movie before, but I didn't remember that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those where there are definitely Capote elements to it, but I think because he's so associated with like Breakfast at Tiffany's, <laughs> Mm -hmm. and and in cold blood like this seems like quite a departure in a lot of ways from what we would expect from Truman Capote um but it is based on the turn of the screw by uh by Henry James and actually if you've never read the novella it's a very faithful adaptation in a lot of ways um definitely makes some changes but uh but that this whole idea of like the psychology of the main character and everything kind of being filtered through her and her experience and what she sees and what she believes and kind of her descent into either being a savior or being completely insane. Um, and, and I think the film exploits that tension really, really well. So just to give a, a quick rundown of what this film is about, Deborah Carr plays Miss Giddens, who um, applies for a job as a governess to take care of these two small children uh, living in the living in the country. So I'm trying to remember where it's at Blind Manor, but I think it's like in um, Suffolk or someplace like that. So like very a very isolated area, um, very far from anything. We never actually see towns or cities or almost like the the cast is primarily made up of just the inhabitants of the house right um so there's that emphasis on this this isolation and rural isolation as well there's also emphasis on femininity because most of the characters are women 
um, with the exception of the uncle who appears very briefly at the beginning of the film and Miles, who is the one of the little children that um, Miss Giddens tries to take care of. And Miss Giddens becomes convinced that the children are being possessed by ghosts. <laughs> and she's going to try to save the children from them. But it's a it's a very slow process, right? Um, her and the big question in the center of it is, are these real ghosts? Are the, you know, real ghosts? Are these actual, like, spirits of the dead who have come back to haunt the house? Or is this something that Miss Giddens is, is projecting completely? So what are your thoughts on this film, Karen? I, I agree with you. I think it's a pretty faithful adaptation of the novella. And I think that, um, especially initially, it does such a good job of, of introducing us to how isolated this place is, which is part of why things go in the direction that they do when you're out in the middle of nowhere by yourself, essentially by yourself. I mean, there's like four people in this house and that can be, there's also, there's like two other people that work there that we never really Mm -hmm. see. (laughs) So it's, so it's like these, this weird, um, like just really well-developed sense of of isolation that really heightens the experience of of is she really seeing what what she thinks she's seeing and what we think that she's probably seeing um you don't know and that's never fully answered which i think is part of why this makes for such a creepy um well-told adaptation um Deborah Carr is great, although I think it's kind of funny because she was like 40 when she made this movie. And in the beginning, when she's meeting with uh, her new boss, basically having this job interview, and she's like, yeah, I've never done this before. And it's like, is she supposed to be young? Because <laughs> <laughs> she's 40. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, I, it's been a while since I've read this, the book. I think she is supposed to be younger, mm-hmm. um, although not like there's... That, that's the thing. There's all of this, these little bits and pieces of information about her character that kind of give you a little bit of an insight into her background, but not much. Like, yeah, never learn, a whole lot. Yeah, we learned that like she's the daughter of a country parson, that she that her family was obviously somewhat poor. Like they she at one point she mentions that the house was so small they could never have secrets. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and and there's one of the I think one of the most interesting things actually is in that initial interview between her and the uncle played by Michael Redgrave. One of the first things that he asks or practically the first line, like actual line in the film is, do you have an imagination? <laughs> and it's like you. OK, you definitely do not want someone with an imagination for this part, um, because <laughs> because that's that's one of the things that's one of the questions then that develops is this her imagination and if so why she has this like it's one of those things where I think that it plays kind of weird in the contemporary moment of like she really likes children like she talks about how the children have to be protected the children have to be taken care of we have to protect the children etc and there's just something a little manic I think about like even from the very beginning you know like there's something a little bit off about this um, about her, her desperation to protect the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these children who have been through a lot already because mm-hmm. um, they're orphans. Their uncle doesn't give a crap about them and they fully know this. 
and um they, they these are kids that have been through a lot and they're also very used to this house and the grounds and the way that she is so like clinging to them all the time honestly i think that's part of where I commented on the age thing because I think it's funny because I'm not sure if she's supposed to be playing like a 25 year old young governess who's never worked before or if she's supposed to be her age. And I think it works either way, um, but for different reasons. I think if she is a 40 year old woman who's never really done this kind of work before, that's part of why um, she's she's like clinging to these kids so much because uh, she knows how hard the world can be. And, um, and mm-hmm. she really takes this, this job seriously, uh, or she's young and just doesn't have any experience either way. She fits into this moniker of the innocence because she is in many ways yeah. herself, very innocent and, and, uh, unexperienced in the ways of the world. Yeah. And, and she, in entering into this house, which is like, and, you know, you get the impression this is much grander, much bigger, much more refined in a lot of ways than anything that she's experienced but it's also yeah. incredibly isolated like like i said there's no there there's talk about there being a town right but we never see the town you know you even pointed out there there were a couple of characters who are mentioned as being in the house that you never actually meet so the people that the audience spends the most amount of time with are miss giddens um, the two children and um, Mrs. Gross, who is the the kind of housekeeper, right? And and those are really the only characters of any note that run throughout the entire film. So you get the sensation of isolation. I think that the film also does a really good job, not just of that isolation, but of the darkness and and how like emotionally isolated these characters have to be because they don't have like it takes you know days to send letters there is no telephone there is no like there is no immediate communication with the outside world um and it really does facilitate the sense of paranoia of darkness of um you know the fact that there there are no electric lights they're walking around you know using candles and lanterns and fireplaces and it reminds you that in this that in this era, that's the way that people lived. But it it also produces ghosts, right? It's the kind of thing you're just like, yes, I would have a nervous breakdown too. <laughs> yeah, um, I was actually just that the isolation from communication. I was thinking about that a lot with another of the films that we're going to talk about today, and how um, people were kind of by necessity a lot more patient. Uh, just because they didn't get the instant gratification mm-hmm. of a text message or an email or anything like that, but how that space in between, I was exactly what you're just saying. That space in between can really um, make your mind play a lot of tricks on you and start to, to go different places, which is why, you know, we have, um, uh, what is her name? Flora who keeps talking about miles is coming home miles is coming home and they have no reason to think he's off at Mm -hmm. school he's fine and then they get the letter that he's coming home and it's i don't know it's just it's interesting um but it's just it's the like even when there is sort of this like confirmation of what someone is is saying is going to happen like in the case with the floor and miles um but still in that that time in between when they're when there's so much waiting and so much 
not knowing what's coming or what's going to happen next. Um, that's where your mind really can just kind of take hold and, and come up with all kinds of, of scenarios and, and just conjure yeah. up a lot of things that may or may not actually be there. Well, it, exactly. And so almost immediately, right. Um, Miss Giddens begins to, to become obsessive about not just about the children, but then she learns the story about the former governess who died Mm-hmm. um miss jessel and the relationship between the former governess and um peter quint who was like the the valet who wound up basically running the household and i think that one of the the really interesting things about these this kind of evocation of the ghosts is that so much of it is about what miss giddens and what mrs gross as well project onto it there's so much that isn't being said right there's yeah. implications about the relationship between these two characters. There's implications about who these people were, but it's a lot of it is very much coming from the minds of the people involved. And the audience isn't being privy to any of the, the real past, right? We don't get to actually see, here is who Peter Quint actually was, here is who Miss Jessel actually was. Um, mm. What we get instead is like these little indications of like, oh, there was something wrong, right? There, there's all of this discussion about like, you know, their relationship with the children and, you know, and the and their own personal relationship, just like it was obscene, it was bizarre, all of these things, but it's never stated out like what? What actually went on here? What is what is underneath all of those implications? Um, and how much of that is actually true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do wonder though, uh, cause I mean, I know that this does follow along with the book too, but I wonder how much of the not, uh, not revealing things has to do with the time period in which this mm. was made too, because there's things that you can't be super explicit about, but it does, it yeah. does make it something where there's this constant question that never gets answered. Well, and I think that that's it. I think that the film exploits that element. It definitely exploits yeah. the element of the book where it's never stated outright. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of, I think that that's honestly part of the point of the film and part of the point of the story itself is that the fact that these are things that are being subsumed basically creates this like psychological break, right? Where you begin to overlay all of these assumptions and very vague but very intense beliefs about the people of the past about ghosts and things like that it's all of those things that are being kind of squished down crushed buried and are coming out in these really dark and and increasingly bizarre ways um one of the things i really like about this film is the fact that we don't get we don't we get very little that is not from the perspective of miss giddens so we Mm -hmm. see the ghosts Right. We see Peter Quint. We see Miss Jessel. Other characters claim that they don't see them. Um, Even when they're standing right there. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. And so we're seeing them. So we're very much in her head. We're very much like, no, those are ghosts. They're real ghosts. We see the ghosts. They're there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's this question about, like, are the children actually telling the truth? Can they not see the ghosts? Are they not experiencing this in the same way that she is? Or is this just entirely her increasing psychosis as the film goes on um and it it exploits the the fairly reactionary idea that is is contained in a lot of gothic horror which is that women are more in tune with women and children in particular um are more in tune with the supernatural and the spiritual world than anyone else and 
that's one of the things that kind of develops uh, throughout this woman, particularly this this woman who is already kind of on edge. I give Deborah Carr a lot of credit for playing, being able to play characters that are always seem to be about one step away from a mental breakdown to begin with. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she's so she's already on the edge. It's not surprising when she gets pushed over, but the audience is right there with her. Um, it's very sharply focalized through her. And we're seeing, you know, we're kind of being put in the position of this woman who is experiencing whatever this is and whether it's real or not, it's very real to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, are, so what are your thoughts? Are the ghosts real in this film? I think, I think yes. I don't know. I think yes. Only because there are a few things that happen that we never do get any sort of an explanation mm-hmm. for. Like, I mean, obviously Flora has some sort of psychic ability, you know, and yeah. um, the kids are clearly connected. I don't, I don't know, but I would say yes, I think so. So the ghosts of like Jessel and Miss Jessel and, yeah. and Cruncher. Yeah. Um, I, I think that very similar to some of the films we talked about last week, I think that you can kind of go either way and that um, because it, The Innocence is very similar to something like The Haunting, which is made around the same time. Um, because you're, we're so in the position of the person that these things are happening to, it's next to impossible to kind of pull these things apart and like actually take more, a more objective view of it. Yeah. Um, it's so heavily subjective. Yeah. So, but the audience is definitely asked to, to believe like in these, in these ghosts. Although I do, do find you it think? I've gone back and forth on this one. I think again, it's it's one of those cases where neither explanation is one hundred percent adequate. Because if you say no, it's just her psychological projection. It's like then, yeah, you do have the questions like, well, what about Flora and Miles's connection? You know, so are we going to say like, oh yeah, Flora is psychic and has this connection to her brother, but ghosts aren't real? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think that there's that, but then on the other hand, because we're being so immersed in Miss Giddens perspective and because she is becoming increasingly unhinged as the story goes on, um, and there are all of these other elements about her, her personal psychology and her personal kind of hangups that we don't completely get to understand because we don't know a great deal of her backstory or, what is going to happen to her after this. Um, I think that the film develops that tension really well. So I don't think it's one of those where I don't think it's one or the other. Um, yeah. It's both like, and much like, actually much like in, in The Haunting, you can practically read the ghosts as being real, but also being projections of her mind. Mm-hmm. So they are real ghosts who are actually there that she is seeing. And they are also things that she has created. Yeah. So, but I, I think that's what makes this gothic horror to a certain degree, because it's a, a lot of it is about belief and a lot of it is about this, this element of women having these emotional and psychological reactions to the world around them, to repression, right? Like mm-hmm. that's really what it comes down to. Um, and, and it, it ending very badly for everybody involved. Yeah. Tragic endings and, ugh. But very, very good. And one of the things that I also like about The Innocence is it's one of those films where um, the location becomes 
one of the characters because this uh-huh. house and the grounds around it and the lake and everything very much feel like a character in the story, not just the setting for everything to happen. You oh, get yeah. this sense of it being alive and and contributing, I guess, to the psychosis that's unfolding. Well, and that and that's definitely a feature of gothic horror as well. That that like you know we're talking about isolation, um, about the kind of crumbling edifices and things like that. It's that the location is so important because that's that's where the the ghosts get buried basically mm-hmm. um and and it's very easy to bury it because it just kind of enters into legend to a certain degree um yeah. because you you have this rural isolation you have this space where you can hide the bodies and no one's ever going to find them kind of thing so yes the innocence i think is is fantastic <laughs> uh so Again, speaking of repression, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and this this being again fo- this next film again being focalized through a female character, but being very much about male repression and and the the kind of dominance of women actually within his story. Um, let's let's talk about the Tomb of Legia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which is a 1964 British horror film uh, directed by Roger Corman. And it stars Vincent Price and Elizabeth Shepard and uh, was actually written, the screenplay was written by Robert Town, uh, who we know from Chinatown fame and a whole bunch of others. Uh, and and it's based on Edgar Allan Poe's story and features Price as uh, Verdon Fell, who has recently, recently, I, don't, I forget how recent it actually is, but he's lost his wife, Ligia, and he is living alone in this kind of rundown abbey and he meets uh elizabeth shepherd who uh is uh rowena rowena trevanian which is a fantastic name uh <laughs> and and they begin they basically begin a relationship and one of the reasons why they begin the relationship is she reminds him a great deal of his dead wife Lygia. but it becomes obvious that Lygia is dead but maybe not dead or maybe she's a cat, or maybe she's a ghost, <laughs> or maybe this poor guy has just like completely lost his head. Um, or this, maybe all of the above. Or probably more like all of the above. Uh, this this is, I, I think, one of the, of all of the Poe Corman adaptations, I think this is probably one of the weirdest. Um, yeah. And, and with the exception of the House of Usher, probably the most gothic as well. Like, He's literally living in in this abandoned, rundown abbey where there are cobwebs everywhere, and everything has been preserved exactly as it was when Lygia died. And then Rowena enters into this, and she's kind of trying to to take over. She's trying to help him. She's trying to like run the ghosts out, and and it ba- basically doesn't work. Um, so, Karen, I want to know what your thoughts are about this film before I go into it. Oh, I I don't know. <laughs> I think that I would like to hear why you like it before I talk about it. Uh, well, first of all, like... You and know, you spoil- have to say a reason besides Vincent Price. Well, first of all, Vincent Price, like, obviously. I, but I, I actually do think that, like, he is one of the major factors of this film, as he is in, in most of the Poe, uh, the Poe adaptations. One of the things I really like about it is that, again, it's a pretty typical story in terms of, you know, Poe and the Poe adaptations. There's this dead woman who seems to be haunting 
um, this whole, this space, then particularly this one man who's essentially claimed him, right? Is saying like, he is her husband and she's never going to let him go even into death. Um, one of the things I like about it is that it is campy. It's silly in a lot of ways, but I also like this whole idea about the willpower being so strong. Like part of the story of Legia is that her will is so powerful, is so overwhelming that she hangs on to her home and her husband and her entire space, even through death. Like there's a lot of discussion. And I think that it's, um, it's interesting because the film really evokes it well without necessarily showing it. There's a lot of discussion about her as she's dying, her like becoming more powerful at some level. So that like in death, she actually becomes even stronger, more powerful than she was in life. And again, it's it's interesting because a lot of the fight that then develops is, is very much between Ligia and uh, Rowena. And it's over Verdon, but it's also just over this, this degree of power. And I think that so much of Gothic stories, particularly of this era, deal directly with women not having a great deal of power. Um, and the power that they are able to gain is through, you know, for lack of a better word, through evil, but through like being able to dominate, right? Being able to control. And it comes out in these increasingly dark, bizarre, incredibly weird ways. Uh, but this this is actually like the only way women are able to have power, as we discussed in, in our discussion of the witches, um, the only way women are really able to have power is through evil, is through like basically just dominating and being repressed and being forced down and being told to, that you have to be in a certain way. The only way that, that you're ever going to gain any degree of autonomy is is just by dominating everybody around you. So that's one of the reasons why I like it. I also just like the fact that the entire thing culminates in Vincent Price fighting with a cat. <laughs> uh, that does happen. That yes, it is does. A thing that happens. Um, in a burning abbey, he fights with a cat in a burning abbey. Like, how can you not love that? <laughs> uh, it does. It is entertaining. Um, and that's the thing. Like, I think overall for me, this movie is is entertaining enough but it is for me by far the weakest of the roger corman poe adaptations certainly the weakest of the ones with vincent price and i don't think this is a film that would have worked at all if it was not for vincent price he's the only reason that this movie isn't completely terrible um but i do think that uh one of the things that besides it being entertaining um i think one of the things that i appreciate or admire about this film is the way that it um deals with rowena having to essentially deal with or live with with her new husband's ghosts like the 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 things that are haunting him she's the one who ends up having to like take that on essentially yeah and um and how that impacts her so directly and 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 how it has such big consequences for her and i think that that's developed really well i think it's it's uh kind of this overall theme is the way that women have to suffer 
because of men and their choices because if you know i mean obviously therapy wasn't really a thing back then but <laughs> if you would have just gotten some therapy <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like it's just this constant battle of of women having to deal with um the undealt with trauma that men suffer and and i think that that's done very well in this yeah i i agree with that i mean i I I wouldn't necessarily say that this is the weakest of the Poe adaptations. I think Pit and the Pendulum is the weakest. In, I just disagree, in, but <laughs> just in terms of focus, I I am speaking as someone who has uh, the poster of the Tomb of Lygia tattooed on one of my arms. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, but I I agree. It is very silly in a lot of ways, and it is very dependent on on price in particular. And and I think that like a lot of the the characters that um that he plays particularly in the Poe adaptations, I think that Verdon is, he's tortured, right? He's, yeah. he's not evil. <laughs> he's not yeah. like, he, he isn't trying to hurt anybody. And in fact, there's this indication that they do have a very happy life when they leave the Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, like their initial marriage, their honeymoon, et cetera. And then they come back to the Abbey and it's like, he falls right back into this, this possession, basically. It's very much a story of possession. Yeah, um, he's also so ingrained in it and enmeshed in it that he does not, he's not intentionally inflicting anything on Rowena. He doesn't see or doesn't yeah. understand what he's doing to her because of his, yeah, possession is the right word. Yeah, and and I think that um, it's that unwillingness. As a lot of Poe's stories deal with the unwillingness to let go, the unwillingness to let go of the dead. Mm-hmm. and But also the degree to which the dead continue to possess you. Yeah. Um and and of course this is taken to a pretty pretty remarkable extreme in in this film i remember i think it was the second or third time i watched it it was like the first time it didn't completely process with me what was actually going on and then the second time i was like oh he he's a, he's a necrophiliac <laughs> uh which is quite shocking actually mm-hmm. when you're watching this movie it's like oh that's her dead body uh mm-hmm. <laughs> in a in the their the bedroom okay mm-hmm. um but it it is interesting that like you actually have this character who is very sympathetic like you feel sorry for the guy uh and at the same time is probably committing one of the worst atrocities that you can with a dead body um but it it is that sensation of obsession and possession and the dead refusing to die basically so and holding on to the living and expanding like the the their hold on the living like the implication is very much that Lygia will not let him go i yeah. think that i think that this film in in similar ways to the innocence also does beg the question of you know is this actually a ghost story is this actually explicable in, in from a supernatural perspective or is this literally a man who has been incapable of dealing with his grief and letting his wife pass on and you know being healthy about it etc because while there are definitely supernatural indications you can read it very much as like this this is just a guy who deeply needs therapy right as you say yeah except for that so much of what happens happens to rowena and not to him mm-hmm. and like but but i mean there are the things that are explained yeah the cat <laughs> um there are things that do get explained, like how her death date disappears off the 
off the tomb and then he realizes he was the one who did it and you know those kinds of things there is an explanation mm-hmm. for it but there's also i mean i i know cats sometimes cats often get a bad rap first of all um <laughs> sometimes they can be evil so can dogs and so can people um but uh i think that that fight at the end that was not a normal cat so <laughs> something's going on <laughs> Or is it a cat that realizes that the whole fucking house is about to burn down that also and is, is terrified? Possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but like it, it, the, the, when she chases the cat up the bell tower. I do want to like, know why she chases the cat up the bell tower. Like why? Like just let the <laughs> cat go. The glasses aren't that important. <laughs> well, well, that's that's the thing. I. I mean, one of the kind of the funny elements of it is this, in some ways it's just a cat being a cat because cats yeah. can be jerks. Yeah. Like, and they they're sure sometimes can. just like, uh-huh. they will look right at you and knock something over. Exactly. So it's <laughs> like, well, and and we we impute that kind of um, that <laughs> that kind of uh, assholishness to cats in particular. That cats are like one hundred percent willing to to just you know be like, oh, you want something? Well, you can't have it. Yeah, the reason cats get a bad rap is because cats are themselves and they don't apologize for it, unlike yes. most other animals in the world. And but but again, it's all of those things that we overlay on onto them. Like we we give them the this kind of idea that like oh the cat is fucking with me, you know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's just like are they? Well, they are. I don't know, but that's something that we can't really answer. Um, it's that unknowableness of yeah. cats, <laughs> much like ghosts and women, obviously. Um, there is a well there is of course that relationship between the cat and the woman and um the and and again it's it's that you know to to read like in a kind of a different perspective it's that male hysteria that mm-hmm. uh that women have again that that deeper connection to supernatural world and also to the natural world so to are able to transmute themselves into cats are you know irrational at some level or illogical but do have this desire for power and this desire for control that again i think filters very well um into this this whole concept of women not having a great deal of autonomy and looking for power in the spaces where they can find it um and that's part of what i think legia is is about um Let's talk very briefly about the um, the mise-en-scene because I think part of what I really like about Leji and also what makes this this film somewhat influential is is the just like he's living in the middle of this this decaying abbey, right? It's not mm-hmm. even really a house; it's an abbey. So you have all of the this religious iconography running all over the place, mm-hmm. um, and. And it it is just like this house that's falling apart, like and is being left to fall apart. He's not doing anything about it. There's no attempt to like actually repair it or anything like that. And when Rowena comes in, there is like it gets brighter, it gets cleaner, et cetera. But it's it's still this like rapid decay. And that's one of the things that um, you know, we obviously see a lot in a lot of Gothic horror is these houses that are falling apart and that are falling into disarray. Um, that is very symbolic of the experience of the characters themselves and particularly the old aristocracy and particularly the male characters who are literally like crumbling from the the ins- the outside in mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it is a good representation of what's happening with him emotionally and psychologically because uh, he is he is a mess and he is just crumbling inside. He has um, really just let things go. He's not taken care of anything. He hasn't he hasn't. uh, Yeah, he's just basically let it let it fall into disarray as he has with himself. He's just embraced his grief. And let that be who he is until he meets Rowena. And then so they leave on their honeymoon after they get married and they come back and the house is definitely on its way, but they're also getting ready to sell it. And it's like you can really see that that Rowena is is in a lot of ways she's healing to him. She Mm -hmm. is helping him let go of the past and move forward. And that is also reflected in what we see in in this abbey that they're living in um and also why he finally is at the point where he feels like he's ready to let go and move on but then there's this element of okay the buyer is falling through and then it's like was then it just kind of leads to that more of that question of how much of this is real and how much of this is in his head because mm-hmm. did like is it really just not happening because it's just not or is it because he has somehow sabotaged this because he's really not ready to let it go. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point as well. It terms of like, I love the te- I do love the Technicolor aspects of this film, the like the <laughs> brightness of everything, and mm-hmm. and we don't usually associate gothic with brightness, but there's so much brightness and contrast. So um, much of it happens in the daytime. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. absolutely true. Yeah, uh, and and it's interesting because you know he talks about himself as being this man who lives in twilight right like he he wears dark glasses constantly he lives at night and yet you do have this this entire thing about it it, a lot of it happening in the daytime and a lot of the the world and rowena in particular bringing in a lot of brightness i think she's first introduced wearing you know hunting um hunter's pink right so Mm -hmm. she emerges as she's bright and this major contrast to the world that verdon lives in um, and it's ultimately it's ultimately not enough. She can't save him because he he is not willing to let go. Speaking of men who aren't willing to let go. <laughs> oh, God. Nice. So so I do think that the Tomb of Elegia does have, um, you know, just in terms of the, the Poe Corman uh, films, very much does kind of reflect the development of gothic horror and film. And I. I would be surprised if this was not somewhat of an influence on the last one we would talk about, which is Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak, which is a 2015 uh, film directed by Guillermo del Toro and starring Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Charlie Hunnam, and Jim Beaver, and uh, is is about uh, Mia Wasikowska falling in love with an English baronet, um, and and marrying him played by tom hiddleston marrying him going to live at his house in cumberland at allerdale hall uh and gradually discovering that there are ghosts everywhere and that there's a lot of fucked up shit happening <laughs> this film is like is like Gilbert del toro was like i want to make a goth i want to make the most gothic yes uh romance ever like just all of the things where it's gonna be gothic um because like there's i i love the the whole idea of like oh the decaying gothic mansion the decaying castle etc there's literally a hole in the roof 
mm-hmm. that snow and leaves and things fall and they're just like oh we can't afford to get it repaired it's just like why are you people living in this house that is quite literally falling in on itself yeah because the, um, they talk about the house is sinking um they're over a, a clay mine basically yeah. and it's red clay so it, it makes it look like the walls are bleeding <laughs> the house bleeds. that's the thing the land bleeds right like it's it is like all of those like all of those gothic tropes sort of coming up literally coming up from below <laughs> yeah um <laughs> Yeah, no, like, like even rewatching it this time around, I was like, the ha- the floor is literally fucking bleeding. Like, there's blood everywhere. There's the snow is covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I was just like, of course there are ghosts. There can't not be ghosts. Well, there's even a part where she asks him, "Has anybody died in this house?" And he says, "The house is hundreds of years old. Of course, people have died in it. What are you talking about?" <laughs> like, yeah, there's ghosts here. It's a very, very old house. <laughs> um, I mean, this, this, you know, in terms of some of the things we've been talking about, this whole idea of this young woman coming into a space, she's an outsider, right? And she's quite literally, she's American. Um, she is, you know, very forward thinking. Her father has obviously given her like a great deal of independence. She wants to be a writer of ghost stories. Um, all of this. So she's literally this, this outsider coming into this family that is falling apart at the seams. There are only two people left as, as in the immediate family. Um, they have no money. Their house is falling apart and she's coming into this space and she's sort of the one who might provide healing, but is definitely going to uncover all of the darkness that they have repressed over the course of it's implied, you know, not just the, these two characters, but like, the entire family is fucked up. It's it's repression over the course of centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I don't know where to begin with this one. It's just so rich. Where would you like to start, Karen? Oh, that's a good question. I think at the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> you know, I, I think just the way that the story develops, it starts out, um, it starts off not creepy at all. You know, it starts off mm-hmm. very much as like this romance um, that very quickly turns into a tragedy um, where you've got, uh, I'm totally blinking on names, Edith. Yes. Mia. Yeah. The Mia Wasikowska. Yes. Yeah. And then she meets Lucille and um, Thomas. Him, Thomas. I was thinking that it wasn't Thomas because his name is Tom. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not right. No, it is. Uh, yeah, so so she meets him. They have this connection very instantly um, over her work. Like he says some very kind things mm-hmm. about her work, and and that means a lot, you know. And so then later, when when her father knows exactly what he and his sister are up to, and and um, tells him to thoroughly break her heart, and Thomas goes after Edith's writing like oh, i felt that as a as a writer as a creative person oh my gosh that's like the yeah that's the the worst thing you can do is just crush somebody's confidence in in their work and it's really well done and so it's just this development of these characters and you can really see the way they fall in love but then um the way that there's certain so many times where she 
uh, has the opportunity to just stop and not keep going with things, but mm-hmm. she's just so drawn in to this this world that ultimately ends up maybe being kind of real, maybe not. And by that, I mean his feelings for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's I don't know. I just I think that the Del Toro really lays the groundwork. Well, he very clearly understands. Um, this gothic horror, I guess, subgenre, and and pulls so many influences in in ways that um, just really build. So that by the time she gets to this house on the other side of the world, um, you really sense how much she has given up and left by- behind, yeah. and how badly this is going to go for her. Yeah, in a, in a certain sense, it's regression for her yeah. because she she was in this position where she she was relatively independent. Um, she, in fact, she was admired for her independence in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Her father really obviously admires the fact that she is as strong as she is. Yeah, um, and she was encouraged in that. She encourages her to write, uh, right. and so she's in this space where she, and like and the Char- the Charlie Hunnam character who I completely forgotten about even existed until uh, <laughs> I rewatched this film. But even he, like, he is this character where he like he's interested in the work that she does, et cetera. But it's not enough for her, um, and she does. She falls in love with this this man who is he's all of the things in a lot of ways. He's her own creation. He's all of the things that you imagine. He's the Byronic hero, right? Um, he's, you know, he comes from this faraway land, right? He comes from this older world of aristocracy. He comes from this older world of uh, invention. And yeah, and he engages with her immediately about her writing and about ghosts mm-hmm. and um, about, and and imbues her life with this romance that she thought she was missing. He also, sorry to jump in, but also um, part of that too is he offers uh an unexpected bit of humility by by the fact that it turns out like she instantly notices his clothes and his shoes and realizes yeah he's not they're not doing as well as they want us to think and then he full-on admits that to her yeah like our family you know things have been really hard and so this this element of of he's not crazy successful um nobility he's he's there's just something i don't know there's something a little bit sweeter and more sad about his story when she when she learns it before she learns the actual whole story um but yeah (laughs) and and also he's creative right and she admires that Mm -hmm. in him he's trying to do something for his family he's trying you know he's trying to build this machine that will um that will will save them we'll be able to dig up the clay pits and without uh, sinking the house yeah and we'll we'll restore them and then also as soon as we get to to their house we discover he makes toys right so Mm -hmm. there is this like level of creativity and and again of romance that obviously very much appeals to her i think that that one of the underlying implications of that is also that she has an opportunity to save him yeah. Um, like finan- financially, like in a, in a literal sense that her that the money she is going to bring as an heiress will rescue him, will rescue his family, will enable him to, to fulfill the dreams that he has for his house, et cetera. And so I think that there is this sort of savior ideal that she is experiencing, that she's like she gets to save this man. And and throughout the film, in a certain sense, she's even looking to save him from his own past. Mm-hmm. um to save him from the house from his sister 
And then it becomes clearer and clearer just how much danger she is actually in. And that that fantasy is very much not the fantasy that she wants. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's the the whole kind of setup of their romance. I agree with you. The setup of their romance is really believable and it's actually very psychologically rich because it isn't just like oh here's this dark mysterious stranger i am now in love with him it is much more complicated than that Mm -hmm. um and definitely has elements of like jane Eyre and uh a lot of dragon wick as well um to go back to my vincent price obsession (laughs) (laughs) um but but it's it's that similar thing of like this this young woman who is not at all weak Right. She's not as just being like, oh, she's this Victorian waif or anything like that. She's a she's a strong woman um, who sees this opportunity in in this man to kind of exist in a different world and to save him at some level and is is ultimately unable to. Yeah. So let's let's talk about Jessica Chastain. Oh, let's. As Lucille Sharp, just just as an aside, I fucking love Jessica Chastain in this movie. I think this is the most fun she has ever had in a role. She just mm-hmm. seems to be having a great time the entire film. And she gets to go progressively bonkers as the movie goes on. And it makes sense. It's not like a sudden shift, right? But she's just like, oh, I get to be evil, do I? Oh, I like that. <laughs> I was reading an article the other day about this and it said that they did originally pitch for her to play edith and she read the script and said can i be lucille instead (laughs) and they were like okay (laughs) so i understand that because she is wonderful in this she's just like i get to be evil how evil can i be as evil as i want to be all right Mm -hmm. all right but again with complexity it isn't just a villainous right she isn't just like oh she's bad we hate her it's like she is really interesting and and she is sinister right from the very beginning um and but it, it's it's one of those things that like she is so complicated and so sad by the end of it that you can't falter but you can't it's it's one of those just like these these are very fucked up people these are people that need a lot of help and that probably need more love and understanding than they've ever received in their entire lives um, and Imagine I think that- how differently our world would look if people in the Victorian era had had therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and so much of the story very much is about a cycle of abuse and a cycle of trauma yeah. and adapting to that trauma. So it's implied that the um, that their parents were very abusive to them, and that then in turn warps both of them in different ways. And one of the things that I found quite interesting throughout this film is that it's very, it's, it turns into not a battle between Edith and Thomas, but a battle between Edith and Lucille. It's about the two of them and the conflict. And he's kind of the, the thing that's in the middle of everything, but it very much is about them fighting it out for him and fighting it out also just for the, the, the power power over themselves, power over love, like an understanding of what love actually is and how strange and warped, but also real it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love how when we first meet Lucille, um, the way she's framed, she's in this very elegant red satin evening gown. 
and um, we see her from behind. She's playing the piano. She just kind of very, um, very slowly turns her head just a little bit, but you don't see her until a little bit later. And by the end of the film, uh, after everything's out in the open and we know the whole, we, well, we know, you know, we know what the, what the plot is. We know what the game is. Um, she is completely a mess. Her hair is down. She's in this, this like dressing gown. She's, um, you know, she's covered in, in blood and <laughs> clay. I'm not, I think both. Both. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just everything that we first met uh, is completely gone. All of the pretenses is pulled back and we just mm-hmm. see this woman who has completely lost her mind and is desperate and lashing out in violent ways because it's all she has left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she's like she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's but great. Yeah. I I really enjoyed Jessica Chastain in this role. I think that um I think because of of the fact that she Chastain herself because of the the way that she speaks and the mannerisms that she brings in um, I think it's very easy to to use. You, you do see the sinister side of her, but you don't see this unhinged side. She's still mm-hmm. there's still this alluring quality to her where you're drawn to her and you want to be on her good side, even if you're not really sure why. <laughs> Whereas by the end, it's like, kill this bitch. She needs to die. <laughs> well, and and but even like when you're when you're like kill this bitch she needs to die it's just like yeah because you want Edith to survive but at the same time she is sad she's a sad yeah. character in a lot of ways like yeah this this is someone and and I think one of the powers of this film is how it acknowledges the the total impotence of the male characters and I mean that mm-hmm. like the the emotional and fi- like and physical impotence of them the, Thomas himself who benefits from his sister's crimes. Right. Right. And kind of gets pulled along through them and maybe resists them a little bit, but he can like, she even says like, he, he won't commit the crime. He won't be the one to kill the the wife. Right. He won't be the one to stop the mother from beating him. She is constantly protecting him. And there is this like pitiful aspect to it where he just like, he has no, Power. And it's not because women have taken the power away from him. It's because he is powerless in himself. He's weak. And and you're just like, I and I don't want to be like, oh, you should be murdering people. But at the same time, there is a point in this film where I was just like, oh my God, like do something for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like anything. Your sister's just gonna go ahead and keep on killing. Like fucking do something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a very um yeah he's he's very incapable in a lot of ways you know he has ideas he has thoughts but he is incapable of making anything happen and um and and taking action he also doesn't really think for himself much you know ever all the thinking is done for him by by lucille and a little bit by edith too yeah like like everything he's very much not his own person at all uh and but at the same time there's something there's like I say he's weak. He, there's something a little craven about it because he is benefiting, and mm-hmm. but it, at a certain sense he's stepping. He's like I'm not. I'm not the one committing the crimes. Kind of yeah. Thing. He's just like, he's like putting up like a little bit of a barrier. Yeah, and and it's shifting blame to a certain degree. It, sh- it shifts blame onto Lucille, 
who does physically commit the crimes, but he is very much complicit in everything. But there is that sense that he, you know, and she, and she more or less says that to him at one point, like, you know, you're participating in all of this, but I'm the one who always has to do it. And even that, I think he, he gets let off the hook a little bit, even though he, he's murdered. Uh, <laughs> but there, there is the sensation that he, like, he's let off the hook a little bit because it still is Lucille having to do everything for him and him kind of being like, no, I'm, I'm going to like, I actually care about her. I'm going to be the good one. And it's just like, no, you're literally letting your sister kill her. Like, that's what you're doing. So yeah. you, you can't even commit your own murders. <laughs> that is true. Be a man. Commit your own murders. <laughs> and that's the quote. <laughs> There's also uh, Charlie Hunnam as this doctor who has uh-huh. clearly always been in love with her, yes. with Edith. And she just doesn't see him that way. And which I admire. She doesn't see the hot doctor <laughs> in a romantic <laughs> sense. Good for you, girl. Good for you. Um Fun fact about Charlie Hunnam. I think this is a fact. So he was originally supposed to be in Fifty Shades of Grey. He was supposed to play the character Jamie Dornan eventually played. And he dropped out of that. And supposedly it's because he wanted to work with Del Toro on this movie. So he gave up Fifty Shades of Grey in the lead role to play this guy who uh, is barely in it. And when he does show up, he gets dispatched pretty quickly and has to be saved by a girl plays the hot doctor well but but again i like the fact that this is kind of an upending of some of yes. the, the tropes of earlier gothic where you've got the nice guy right then the and this shows up in Dragonwick. uh it shows up in a number of of these kind of gothic stories we've got the nice guy who is actually like a decent person and is like hey i don't trust this this dude who like came and swept my woman away Mm-hmm. um i'm i'm gonna like figure out what's going on with him and and yeah and he does he's like i'm gonna go save her and everybody says to him like no that's a really bad idea because there's a snowstorm and it's like four miles and it's gonna take you forever and you're gonna die and he makes it to the house and then he like reveals all of the information about these this brother and sister right <laughs> and one of the things i love about that scene is that you've got like the edith who has is dying right she's been poisoned right she's discovered all of these horrible things about she's fallen right she's fallen like two stories and onto yeah. a pile of snow um she's discovered <laughs> all of these horrible things about her husband and his sister and like the ghosts that exist in their house she's isolated she's terrified and then this guy comes in and he is just like ah oh, let me explain to you everything let He's, me explain all the things you've already found out. Yeah. And then he says like, oh yeah, uh, Lucille murdered their mother. And then he fucking turns his back on her. Yeah. He turns around, he turns his back on Lucille. You're like, this is a woman with a knife who you <laughs> just revealed murdered her mother at the age of 14. And you're out in the middle of nowhere and nobody's coming for you. Yeah. And you're just like, now I'm going to leave. And it's just like, bro, you're going to get stabbed. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> and low. <laughs> and yeah. And then Edith, who has been poisoned and thrown off of things, is like, just like, oh, I've got to save this asshole now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do think in a way, him being there and needing to be saved, um, it kind of gives her a little bit more motivation to survive and yeah. get out of this because now yeah. she has somebody else that 
needs to be saved too. So this isn't just her trying to get through this. So I think in a weird way, it, it kind of does does create a little bit more importance <laughs> to 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 stopping this. It um, inspires her. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, I, yeah. I, someone else depends on me, not just me. Yeah. But I just in general love because there's there's so it's not just a gothic trope. Um, there's so many movies where women are perfectly capable for 95% of the film. And then right at the very end, a man comes in and saves her. Like so many movies do mm-hmm. that. And um, this del toro very deliberately was like no mm -mm, she doesn't need a man to save her and we're not gonna do that and so yeah so it 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 works really well i i love that uh that they went that way and i think that edith is just a great character because of the fact that she it's totally believable that by the end she would be able to be the one to get herself out of the situation Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah like she's uh, not suddenly discovering some inherent strength that she didn't know she had. Like it was there all along and we know it. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really good point. The, throughout the entire film, she's very much, she's, she's strong. She's strong from the moment we meet her. Yeah. Um, I, I do like the little Mary Shelley reference uh, mm-hmm. nearing the beginning of the film <laughs> where she says, actually, I want to be Mary Shelley. Yeah, she, I died, <laughs> she died a win. <laughs> my, yeah, my I don't want to be Jane Austen. <laughs> Congratulations, you are going to be Mary Shelley. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about the ghosts because I think the ghosts in in this film are very different from uh, the ghosts in in the other films we discussed. First, in the fact that they do there do seem to be undoubtedly like con- confirmation these are literal ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I like about this one is that the ghosts are quite scary. But at the same time, as as I've seen pointed out a number of times, the ghosts are good. They're trying to help. Yeah. The the initial the first ghost to appear is to um to Edith is her mother, uh, not long after her mother's death. And her mother who's and so you've got this terrifying ghost that at the same time is like trying to give a warning, trying to say, like, you need to be careful. And one of the things that I like about the way that Del Toro conceives of ghosts is that he allows for that horror to come through, but mm-hmm. also to emphasize the fact that like ghosts are frightening because they're the spirits of the dead, not because they're evil. Um, right. And and all of the ghosts that appear in Crimson Peak really are ones that are trying to help at some level. They're trying to reveal something about what has been destroyed. Um, they're trying to help Edith. They're trying to, you know, show her the danger that she's in and to reveal all of those repressed secrets and and all of those things that have lit- like quite literally in a lot of ways been buried under this house. Um, and to a certain degree to get revenge, right? They want all of these things to be brought out and they want destruction because they need to be put to rest. So it, it's... It's a wonderful and in a lot of ways, very emotional interpretation of, of ghosts. And the film makes that very explicit. Like even to the point that, you know, you have Edith in voiceover at the beginning and at the end talking about how ghosts are real mm-hmm. and where they actually come from and how they can be about pain, but they can also be about intensity of emotion. Um, and they can be about love, that survival, that ghosts are not necessarily the result of evil, but can also be the result of 
love as strange and as warped and as bizarre as it is. Right. One of the things I find fascinating about the design of the ghosts for this story is, uh, I mean, they look terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And part of it is because they look like they're dripping in blood, but it's really, we learn later, you know, it's Mm -hmm. because they're from underneath this house where there's this red clay and everything looks like it's covered in blood. And, and I think that that's, um, there's so many things about the way Del Toro designs films and the way that he brings his, his uh, department heads together to really, uh, he's big on color. He wants everything to be very vibrant. Um, these, these really bright palettes in this one, you have a lot of primary color use and, um, and with these ghosts, because of the fact that we just naturally, I mean, something that's not alive just pops up in front of you. Like that's naturally going to be scary. And to represent that fear in such a visual way, um, just to your, like what you're saying, I, I totally agree with you. I think that it's just designed in such a way that, um, they, we, the audience are scared because we see them and it takes a while before we're like, we're going through this with Edith. So it takes a while before we and her, uh, we and she are able to just kind of like, okay, now it's time to, to hear them out and, and mm-hmm. see what it is that they, they want. Um, and that's just represented visually in such a, such a cool way. Yeah. They don't it, look like ghosts that we've seen in anything else. No. And they're very del Toro ghosts. I think mm-hmm. the, that there's like, there's, you definitely see his stamp as a director on them. Yeah. Um, and, and like you say, is like all of the designers that he works with, et cetera, it's, and it's also, they're always represented as being very much in the moment of their trauma, right. Or their, their memory, their emotion. You have the one ghost who is shown nursing a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we learn like where this actually comes from. There's, there's also a sense that the ghosts are only, are not able to break through that easily. Right. So they're only able to break through in a certain way. And that way is frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time is well, well-intentioned, right? Is, is, so they guide her. Um, they, you know, her mother tells her to beware of Crimson Peak. Later on, the other ghosts like point the way for her and try to kind of break through to her to protect her and to resolve what has happened. Um, because that's something that they, that they actually need to to do so that she doesn't become one of them basically. And so that she is able to put them to rest and they're able to finally let go. Yeah. Um, Especially because of like the ghosts of, of Thomas's widow or wives, <laughs> um, they're trapped there and they are basically in, in hell. But what we see by the end, once Edith has, has um, broken free um, and Lucille, Sorry, spoilers. I guess we've already spoiled this, though. Um, but yes. uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you haven't watched it by now, you should. It's on Netflix. Um, but I mean, Lucille dies in in this final fight and we see her as a ghost at her piano just playing. And it's like there's there's this this weird sense of of um, peace about it. I don't know if weird is mm-hmm. even, it's not weird. It's just, it's, it's an unexpected because she was the villain. And now we, as the audience feel 
kind of glad for her that she's free too. Like she's mm-hmm. not able to terrorize any other poor unsuspecting young women, rich unsuspecting young women, I guess. Um, but but she she's also in her version of rest now, and yeah. and I think that that is beautiful too because she, I think one of the one of the points is that even though she is villainous, even though she is basically a monster, there's there's something about her that and and again the, with the generational trauma where um it wasn't all entirely her fault you know she, this was kind of just the the life and the family that she was born into and yeah. seeing her get that freedom at the end is cathartic too yeah the del toro is very fond of those those villains who are villains but they're also trapped um, and they're trapped by their cultures, they're trapped by their families, they're trapped by the trauma that they've experienced, and they respond to it in a particular way. And that doesn't free them that, you know, it's it's that sympathy with monsters kind of thing. It's, it doesn't mean that they're good. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they're justified. Right. But, but they are sad. They are, you know, it's like this, this is your fault, but also it isn't your fault. You made choices, but also we know where those choices came from, you know? Mm-hmm. um yeah I, I think that's really beautiful and i i do think edith has I th- or not edith um lucille has one of the best lines uh she's got a lot of great lines but one of the best lines in the in the film is um you know the marriages were for money but the horror the horror was for love mm-hmm. and i loved that like and it's very much i think expresses del toro's ethos that underneath all of this is love of a certain kind and it's it's a warped love in a lot of ways but it is also real at the same time yeah so i think that's a good place to end any final thoughts on gothic horror uh gothic horror is fun and you should watch it it is fun and it's female centric and it's melodramatic and we love it uh and also, Justice for Crimson Peak. That film was so poorly marketed, and it really if it had been marketed better. It would have just done so well. I do feel like it has had kind of a second life. Yeah, um, it has. You know, in the last couple of years, I think that, and it's only it hasn't even it was not even ten years ago that it was released. But I do think that it kind of got a resurgence once it hit streaming, and people actually sought it out and found it and watched it. I think that. Well, also, I think The Shape of Water helped um, people discover Del Toro in a different way and um, come to appreciate him more. Yes, I agree. So I think that's going to close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, we want to thank our lovely patrons who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Lauren, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Pow. If you would like to join their number, our Patreon is patreon.com slash citizen dame. And thank you, as always, to all of our lovely patrons for continuing to support this podcast. Um, We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, and our Ko-Fi account, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. If you want to read reviews and other fun things, we have our website, citizendamepod.com. 
And you can, of course, get in touch with us in so many different ways. Our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Blue Sky at citizendamepod. And our letterboxed, which is also our letterboxed HQ, is citizendame. And we have lots of lists and things that we have discussed. And it's it's a good place to follow along with us. Um, We are still on Twitter, though, not really. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. I am on all the various socials at LH Business. Karen, where are you? I am at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Stop recording. (laughs) All this horror. For what? The money? To keep the mansion? The sharp name? The mines? The marriages were for money, of course. But the horror, the horror was for love. The things we do for love like this are ugly, mad, full of sweat and regret. This love burns you and maims you, twists you inside out. It is a monstrous love. And it makes monsters of us all.